The date is the 29th of October 2020 and with us today is Dean Lacey, Professor of Government. Professor Lacey actually joins us for our first ever episode on impeachment and so obviously it's, it's great to have him back. Professor, thanks for joining us. It's terrific to be here. So for the benefit of those who maybe haven't listened to that first episode, do you think you could just briefly and um, perhaps introduce yourself, the courses that you teach and any areas of research um, that you're working on right now? I'm a professor of government and I teach mostly in American politics. So I teach our introductory American politics course. I teach a course on campaigns and elections. I teach a seminar called American Political Behavior, but it's also known as whatever I think the important topics are at uh, that point in the class. I'm teaching that next quarter. I teach advanced multivariate models, uh, which is a statistics class after uh, 10. Um, and uh, I also teach game theory from time to time. My research focuses on public opinion, elections, lawmaking. I've also written some on economic sanctions and international relations on East Asian politics and a lot on the uh, impact of economics on elections. Excellent, thank you. Well, obviously election day is coming up and we thought it'd be great to get your insight on it. So just to start off, um, as an academic focusing on elections, what areas of inquiry have you been looking at um, approaching November 3rd? Well, let me set that up by saying that academics don't quite understand partisanship or what drives elections. And there are competing theories of what drives elections, almost like there are competing political parties, there are competing theories or paradigms among political scientists. One is that uh, elections and the way that we vote is driven by partisanship. We adopt our party identification like an emotional attachment, almost like rooting for a sports team. And we keep that partisan attachment with us, and that partisan attachment largely determines our policy positions and our evaluations of things like the economy. According to that view, if you were to switch the policy positions of the Democratic and Republican parties, people who call themselves Democrats and Republicans would likely switch their policy positions. And also according to that view, uh, in our current circumstance with uh, coming out of, or still in potentially, what looks like a pretty significant recession and the COVID crisis, partisans will see or evaluate how the incumbent party has done based on that incumbent lens. Republicans will think Donald Trump has done a great job and that the economy is doing well and Democrats will think that the response has been a failure and the economy is not doing well. There's another theory of elections called retrospective voting. And under this theory, there are a lot of voters who decide how to vote based on their policy positions, or more importantly, on retrospective evaluations of what the parties have done in office. So there are more swing voters who will evaluate the, what the parties have done. Under this view, our policy positions determine our party identification, not the other way around. So if the Democratic and Republican parties switch positions, people wouldn't change their policy positions, but they would change their party allegiance. And there are a pool of voters out there who are trying to evaluate which party has done well uh, on economic issues and the COVID response. And they do that given the information that they have, but it's not all filtered through a partisan lens. Yeah, aside from this precognitive um, bias and tribalism, which I think Jonathan Haidt describes really well in The Righteous Mind, um, are there any other topics which you think um, either academics or mainstream mainstream public sentiment is missing? But sorry, before you answer that, you described kind of three viewpoints right there. Which one do you think is more correct? I kind of revealed 
where I'm coming from with my Jonathan Haidt reference, but we'd love to know where you stand. I think the latter theory I described, retrospective voting, and that party identification is more a summary of our issue positions rather than a cause of our issue positions is correct. Now, back in, well, a year ago, one year ago, we were facing, academics were facing an election where we were going to be able to test those two theories. Uh, because the retrospective voting theory, given how the economy is going, would suggest that Donald Trump would win. And the partisanship theory would suggest that the Democrats were more activated, uh, angrier. Uh, a prominent blogger named Rachel Bittekofer has been using this to um, this theory of negative partisanship to predict elections. And, and her argument is that, that voters, especially the Democrats, are really agitated, ready to turn out, and that Donald Trump would lose the election. Now, after COVID and the economic downturn, both of these theories are making the same prediction, which is that Trump will lose and Biden will win. Uh, and so we can't, as academics, use this as a test case to tell us which one of those two is correct. The other thing, a couple of other things that I'm looking at in this election, number one is I have a paper uh, under review with a former Dartmouth undergraduate, Zach Markovich, who's now in his, uh, finishing his PhD in political science at MIT. And we've looked at electoral volatility over time, going back to the 1828 elections. And, and electoral volatility is defined as how much does a state's electoral vote change over the previous election? So how many states in the simplest form, how many states flip their electoral vote from one election to the next? And since about 1996, the U.S. has, in presidential elections, has been in this period of the lowest electoral volatility in history. Fewer states have switched sides over the previous election than at any time in U.S. history. Let me give you a couple of examples. In 1932 and 1964, which were the high watermarks for electoral volatility, over two-thirds of the states flipped their electoral college vote from the previous election. Uh, in the 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, and 16 elections, fewer than 10% flipped. I'm interested to see how many states flip their electoral vote. Uh, that theory of retrospective voting, even though I say I endorse it, would probably suggest that there's going to be a significant change in uh, the number of st in, in state volatility. That is, there will be a number of states that flip their electoral votes. But most predictions I see suggest that number will be between four and eight, which means we'll still be, despite this incredibly volatile feeling election, in a period where we are really locked into red and blue states. That's partly because the states are becoming more demographically heterogeneous across each other, but internally homogeneous. The populations are different. The issue positions are different. We've sorted into red and blue. And even the upheavals of COVID in the economy mean that we are not seeing major disruptions in which party is voting Democratic and which party is voting Republican. So we look forward to this. I look forward to seeing how many states flip their electoral vote from the previous election. You mentioned there that states have become more internally, I guess, consistent and differ more amongst each other um, demographically. Would you mind fleshing that out a little bit, please? Most of the population growth in the U.S. has been in major urban areas, which are in blue states. The growth in population has been along the eastern seaboard, New York, down to Washington, D.C., and now North Carolina. And you see that blue the blueness on the map moving further and further south. Virginia has now become a solidly Democratic state in presidential elections where it wasn't a decade ago. North Carolina and Georgia both look like they are potentially Democratic 
in the selection. And much of that change is due to growth, especially in populations of color in urban or urban-esque areas like the Charlotte and the Research Triangle in North Carolina, the Atlanta metro area in Georgia and in Virginia, the change was due to Northern Virginia. So we see these large, diverse urban areas, but their populations are packed in a few states. Uh, New York, uh, Pennsylvania, California, on the other hand, there are states in the Midwest and Great Plains and also in the Deep South that are not seeing large increases in their population. If anything, there's some out-migration and the populations are, are, are more white. Um, now, I, I say that with the footnote that in, in states like Alabama and Mississippi have a large percentage of the black popula the population that's black. Uh, but in presidential elections, that vote gets overwhelmed, and in, in some cases, in many cases, it gets disenfranchised. I mean, from felony disenfranchisement laws to other barriers to voting. Um, so we're seeing that the, the, there's this large number of states <clears throat> that have a lot of electoral votes that are stable in their populations, mostly white, and voting Republican. And then we're getting uh, population growth in these urban areas in states in the Northeast, Eastern Seaboard, and Pacific Rim that are increasingly democratic. Yeah, it's not, um, maybe it's, it's more obvious to our viewers, but it's not readily apparent to me why these demographic factors and degree of urbanization and heterogeneity um, in, in locations and areas in the U.S., um, would necessarily impact politi um, politization of certain issues and polarization of Republicans and Democrats. Could you get into why there is this correlation uh, between these topics? Well, let me go back to uh, 2000. Uh, George W. Bush and Karl Rove, who was campaign manager, had a plan to make the Republican Party a majority. And that plan hinged on winning over Hispanic voters which George W. Bush had done in Texas when he ran for governor. That plan, I think, was promising for Republicans as a way to develop a majority party. But congressional Republicans and Republican governors and state legislators in a number of states turned, and I just, I'll call it anti-immigrant. And, and anti-immigration meant trying to stop uh, people who were here undocumented or people who were first and second generation uh, and weren't U.S. citizens from getting access to social services. But there was a spillover effect of this that created a sort of suspicion of anyone who wasn't white, had a Latino-sounding last name. And I think that created a backlash among those rapidly growing populations in states like California. Arizona, for instance, is a competitive state in this election because of, I think, the Hispanic backlash to the Republican Party. Texas may be a close state, and I would suspect that if, if the parties keep their positions within an election cycle or two, Texas will be a Democratic state because of the Republican Party's position on immigration and the fact that the population growth in the U.S. is occurring mostly among populations of color. So if, and you know, I think you could, you could say historically one party started the racial divide or another party did, but I think certainly it was solidified by Republicans, mostly governors in the House, contrary to what Karl Rove and George W. Bush wanted, which has created a country that's divided between white and, and people of color. 
and people of color are mostly moving into these states that are have larger urban areas. I mean, you still see a lot of movement into into rural areas, and especially in places where there there's agricultural production. Um, a, a lot of workers are moving to places where it, where there's um, agriculture production or uh, hog and chicken farms. You see populations growing there, but that's still not enough in, in these rural states yet to overcome the large block of white voters. There's also a gender gap uh, among white voters. I think that gender gap has remained relatively stable, except uh, we'll see after the election, but I think Donald Trump has probably made that gender gap a little wider, especially with Kamala Harris on the Democratic side as the vice presidential nominee, we'll see a, a gender gap. Now, uh, women and men are, aren't as separated and dispersed in different states as uh, whites and people of color are, so you don't see that same kind of, of red-blue divide out of the gender gap that you do from uh, the different populations based on race and ethnicity. Um, now, of course, you've touched on polarization, but I'd like to give you kind of a few minutes just to openly talk about um, how this election and its results will impact how we understand partisanship and polarization. And perhaps we can look at the case of um, a Biden victory um, versus a Trump victory and what the US would look like after each of these possible scenarios. I think the biggest question mark right now is what does the Republican Party do? The, the action will be on the Republican side. Let's start with a Biden victory. I think that Donald Trump was an insurgent candidate in 2016, and a lot of what I'll call mainstream Republicans will look to exercise the Trump legacy from the Republican Party. You're already seeing some Republicans coming out against Trump, positioning themselves to take on the mantle of party leader going into the next presidential election. So a Biden victory means that the Republican Party will do a, a reassessment think about its policy positions and its tone going to the next election, and maybe call up Karl Rove or go back to that pre-2000 plan, which is how do you win over social conservatives? How do you win over, I mean, the party also already has social conservatives, but can you use that social conservatism to move into um, the Hispanic population and try to recapture the growing Hispanic population? Um, <clears throat> the Republican Party may also reconsider its position on things like climate change, where they're losing young voters, and on health care, where they're losing a lot of voters. I think you'll see a reassessment on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, um, if Biden wins, I think there will be a sense of keep moving ahead with the party's plan, but there will be a divide within the Democratic Party between the progressive wing, which uh, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and others on whether we would whether they would push for a green new deal, uh, and then whether Biden would resist, whether they would push for universal health care, uh, whether Biden would resist, a large Democratic win, which I think is plausible, will cause an internal fight within the Democratic Party about who's responsible for this. Is it the progressive wing, and how they activated young voters, or is it what I'll call the more traditional wing that Joe Biden? Uh, and how they were able to appeal to moderate voters. Yeah, I think that that's um, very clear that we're, we're going to see a bifurcation of the Democrat Party into progressives, uh, more large government, socialistic policies, and the kind of old guard Joe Biden era Democrats. But I have a question about the Republican Party. 
Um, nowadays, if you see Tucker Carlson on Fox News, which probably most of our viewers don't, and I rarely do, um, uh, but you can also think of the Republicans and what they used to be as exemplified by Paul Ryan. You know, he makes all of his interns, um, it's a prerequisite that you've read Atlas Shrugged. You're more of a free market, small government Republican, a little bit like a rhino and more like a small L libertarian. Do you think that you'll see the Republican Party going back to its more small government, actually free market libertarian roots and pro-immigration or this kind of Tucker Carlson, Trumpian populism, nationalist republicanism? It's a really interesting question, and I, I can give you a couple different answers. Here's my guess. I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I don't think any Republican who ran in 2016 other than Donald Trump would have won. Now, a lot of Republicans think that somebody other than Trump would have won that election. But what Trump did was he took that Republican base that you're describing, the kind of the, the free market, uh, libertarian leaning, which I don't think has enough votes to be a majority right now. And he added to it the protectionist, economic nationalist, anti-immigration vote that gave him an electoral college majority. So the question is, can you roll that back in the Republican side and win young voters and growing populations of voters of color? There are a couple of things that the Republican Party would have to do, I think, to win young voters and voters of color. Number one is, is recognize climate change and do something to address it instead of being climate deniers. I don't think he can win young voters on a climate change denial platform that the Republicans have been running on. And to win voters of color, you have to reorient the rhetoric away from this anti-immigration rhetoric and toward this inclusivity that is based on a combination of responsibility, economic, economic uh, libertarianism, but also a little social conservatism. Because remember, the voters that the Republicans need to win, Hispanic are, are, are Catholic, tend to be more anti-abortion than the, um, what I'll call the, the rhino Republicans or the Main Street Republicans. The, the, the Republican Party after Reagan moved a little, I mean, it, it took that economic libertarianism and added two things that enabled the, this Reagan revolution to occur and went over the Reagan Democrats. Those two things were a strong posture on national defense, which arguably Donald Trump has lost. He's become more of an isolationist, and I think there's a perception, uh, certainly among neoconservatives in the Republican Party, that he is not tough on Russia. And the second thing is social conservatism. Reagan added to the economic libertarians by adding abortion as an issue. And I think there's probably a potential to, um, for the Republican Party to emphasize a, a pro-life position on abortion and win over Latino voters, but they might do so at the risk of losing more young voters. So the, I think the, the calculus for this Republican libertarian position is a little more difficult than it is on the Democratic side to try to keep the progressives and moderates together. And I mean, we're talking about polarization, and I think something that's popped up a lot in mainstream media is this question of whether there'll be a contested election. Um, do you have any thoughts on this? Is this likely? Um, if it is, what what we're going to see afterwards? Well, two important things happened this week. One, just yesterday, the Supreme Court upheld a revision of the North Carolina um, ballot statutes that were actually supported by the the, the Secretary of State which um, 
allows votes to be counted if they're postmarked on or before election day. And North Carolina is given a nine day window after the election for those ballots to come into their local boards of elections to be counted. Just earlier in the week, a similar provision, uh, a, a similar case coming out of Wisconsin uh, was that a federal judge had ordered Wisconsin to uh, count ballots that were postmarked by election day and to allow a six-day window afterwards to count ballots, whereas the new, uh, Wisconsin statute said the ballots had to be received by election day. The Supreme Court in a 5-3 decision overturned that federal judge um, who ruled that the ballots had to be counted if they came were postmarked by election day. So in Wisconsin now, a ballot has to be received by election day. But in North Carolina, a ballot can be postmarked by election day. Those are two examples, but we have a number of other states that have different rules about when and how absentee ballots will be counted. What this means is, especially we're talking about two swing states, Wisconsin and North Carolina, I don't think we'll know the result of the election on election day. Uh, especially because some of these swing states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, will probably be decided within a two or three percentage point margin and there might be enough absentee ballots coming in in the COVID, right now due to COVID, that, that there might be more votes to count than the margin, than the apparent margin of victory on election night. You know, on the other hand, it could be that on election night there is a, a, a massive wave. I mean, one of two things is going to happen. I think either the Democrats are going to, Biden's going to win by a lot. Well, this is one possibility and there's no doubt and um, we'll, we'll know on election night. More likely is that there will be a number of states, especially swing states, where the election is close enough that the absentee ballots will make a big difference and then there will be legal challenges about which ballots get counted. All right, regarding these legal challenges, and you mentioned the Supreme Court earlier, with the recent appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, um, given how hotly contested it's, it's even its legitimacy is, if not its legality, its legitimacy, um, certainly from um, Democrats and left-wingers, also, given Republicans' rhetoric on the uh, uh, appointment during the end of the Obama administration, um, do you foresee this intensifying um, polarization and conflict around election time? And kind of a, a sub-question to that, do you think that we'll get to a place where the election is so contested um, like it was between Al Gore and George Bush, that the courts need to step in? And what does that look like with Amy Coney Barrett on the bench? It's entirely plausible. I won't say likely, but there's a good chance that the Supreme Court will end up determining the outcome of the election um, through a series of cases that might come out of the courts about, uh, might come out of the states about uh, when and which ballots are counted. Now, it could be that the state legislatures decide um, because there's an important, let me uh, lay out the Electoral College very briefly. The uh, presidential electors meet in December for, on December 14th. It's the Wednesday after the second Monday in December by statute. So they all meet in their respective state capitals on December 14th. And there's a statute called the Safe Harbor Statute um, passed in the late 1900s, or 1800s that says that if a state has its electors certified within six days prior to that, um, the day in which the presidential electors meet, that its, uh, uh, its votes can't be challenged in Congress. So December 8th then 
would be kind of a deadline if you want to think of it. I don't think if it's really a deadline. A lot of people say it's a deadline. All that means is that the states have to have their votes. Um, there are presidential electors certified in order to avoid a challenge in Congress when the votes are mailed to Congress and opened on January 6th. But you could have a scenario where state legislatures decide which slate of electors will be chosen, whether it be the Democrats or Republicans, and that these cases don't even go to the Supreme Court. Now, most of the swing states that we're talking about, are the legislatures are controlled by the Republican Party. So you could have a case where, like in 1876, where there are multiple sets of electoral votes recorded out of some states. And in 1876, that dispute went to Congress that had to come up with a commission to evaluate which sets of electoral votes would be counted from states like South Carolina, Florida, um, where there were disputes where there were two sets of electoral votes that were, were sent uh, to, to Congress. Um, if this, the Supreme Court does get involved, I mean, what we saw in Bush v. Gore was essentially a party line vote for George W. Bush versus Al Gore in that decision of Bush v. Gore. Uh, su such a party line vote now would be 5-3 in favor of the Republicans. Amy Coney Barrett makes it 6-3. So in that sense, I don't think that her vote alone would swing if, the, if it were 4-4 uh, now and she gets on the court and makes it a 5-4 decision, then maybe uh, there, there would be more controversy. But certainly, I think there is a sense on the Democratic side that the court is not as legitimate as it once was because of the, the Coney Barrett quick confirmation and um, the 10-month vacancy during the last 10 months of the Obama administration when a, when a, when a seat wasn't filled. So the Supreme Court has only added to party polarization. And I don't see this court stopping that anytime soon, especially if you go back and read uh, Brett Kavanaugh's and Neil Gorsuch's dissent, um, they're, they're, they're not their dissent, but the Wisconsin case, they were in the majority. You read those decisions and they are taking what I think is a party line, even going back to um, Bush v. Gore, you, you see where they would be on, on how votes would be counted. And just out of curiosity, what do you make of this sort of rapid appointment from a, um, I guess, legitimacy point of view or a constitutional point of view even? You know, that's a, it's a tough question because I, I think, of course, there, there is some hypocrisy here, um, which is to hold a seat on the Supreme Court vacant for 10 months. This is the Republican-controlled Senate. Uh, refused to conduct hearings on Merrick Garland, uh, who was... Uh, um, Obama's nominee uh, in the last 10 months. So we had an eight-member court for almost a year. Uh, and then now when there's a vacancy, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, it's interesting that the first vacancy was Antonin Scalia, who was held up as a conservative stalwart. And the idea was, among the Republican side, you can't replace Scalia with an Obama appointee. Right? Now you have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is the who was the icon of the court on the liberal side. And I think there's a sense you can't replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a Republican appointee. So in that sense, I think there's probably, the Republicans will say, one, that first contest because they replaced Scalia with another conservative. But I think Democrats have good reason to feel aggrieved that Bader Ginsburg was replaced by uh, Amy Coney Barrett with, in, a, in a very rapid confirmation process right before the election. 
and to <clears throat> all the political scientists, this is just confirming something we, we knew. The Supreme Court is not a judicial body. It's a political body and always has been. Yeah, given this politicized nature of the Supreme Court, as well as Amy Coney Barrett's fast-tracked appointment and replacement of you know the liberal titan, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it, it seems to me throughout our conversation that you are pretty confident that Joe Biden will win the election. Um, so if we accept this as a premise, um, you know, obviously it's a counterfactual, but if we accept it, do you think that once the Democrats, both progressives and moderates, get in charge, they will move forward with packing the Supreme Court to some extent or another? I don't want to say I'm confident that Biden will win. Um, I'm, I, I've, uh, I don't get into the prognostication game, but I think most of the scenarios that I'm seeing suggest that Biden will win. I think a Trump, I think a Biden victory is going to look a little clearer and a Trump victory will come out of more contested votes in these in these swing states. But I think is also, you know, I, I can imagine scenarios where Trump will win. Now, will there be a push to pack the court? Well, the last time there was a push to pack the court during the New Deal, there was a what happened was that there was a pretty substantial Democrat realignment in favor of the Democrats. And President and Congress were both on board with some significant re political reforms that then were struck down by an activist but conservative Supreme Court. And FDR threatened court packing, but on some critical cases then, um, a justice and a 5-4 court switched sides and started to uphold some of this New Deal legislation. Now, there are the context, I think, assuming a Biden victory could be similar which is let's imagine a scenario where Biden wins and the Democrats maintain control of the House and get control of the Senate. And there's a sense that there has been a realignment or there is a policy mandate in favor of the Democrats. And issues like Obamacare and immigration, or call it health care, the health care, the ACA, and uh, immigration and some other issues start making it to the court. And the court then strikes down what people perceive as um, democratic initiatives and in Congress and coming out of the president. The difference now is that you have a 6-3 court rather than a 5-4 court, and you have six of the justices who were appointed by presidents who did not win the popular vote. And I think that emboldens the Democrats to do one of two things, either pack the court with Democratic, I'll call them, you know, loyal, loyal Democrats, liberal judges, or to have what I think Joe Biden has hinted at, some kind of national bipartisan commission to say that the court has become too politicized. We want to depoliticize it by having a commission that will select uh, the very best uh, federal court judges based not on their party affiliation or the ideological leaning of their decisions, but on some kind of standard that we can come up with that seems less partisan. Now, would that work? I think that the Democrats could make a, a stronger case that we need to add six members of the court, but it's going to be done in a bipartisan way, and some of them will be Republican. Yeah, given that you brought up how you know some of the legitimacy of the court um, is compromised because we've had presidents that have not been elected by the popular vote, such as our current one, um, but by the Electoral College, and I have kind of a meta-political question for you. Um, this is a little, may, may come off as a little controversial, so uh, I'm, I'm teeing it up with that. But the U.S. has always had non-democratic 
um, safeguards to individual rights now. Uh, for much of our history, these non-democratic safeguards have in fact, you know, alienated people from their natural rights. But, um, you know, presently, you know, the Bill of Rights now, luckily, thankfully, applies to all Americans, or we hope that it is being applied to all Americans. Um, and I see a lot of professors at Dartmouth and other colleges talk about democratic backsliding, uh, indicators that democracy is being lost. And I'm thinking about some people who have been elected in history, either literally elected or supported popularly by the majority, by the masses, that has resulted in some pretty heinous stuff. So the meta question is, how important is the direct democratic portions to our republic if, if what we value is individual rights? Yeah, that's a, a, a complicated question. Um, let me start with what I'll, I'll call is the um, claim that Donald Trump represents a unique assault on democratic norms and values. I think you got it right, which is that historically there have been a lot of assaults on what we'd call democratic norms and values like that. Um, and that Trump in historical perspective, including um, people like Andrew Jackson, um, Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson, FDR. Uh, now, I, I put in that set a number of people, uh, a number of presidents and people say, how can you compare Trump to, to Lincoln? The only person who would ever can Trump, compare Trump to Lincoln is Trump himself. But the comparison is that during the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln adopted a theory of the presidency, which says the president can violate the con individual parts of the Constitution in the spirit of upholding the Constitution as a whole. And that was a controversial doctrine at the time. People alleged it was non-democratic. The same with Andrew Jackson when he was president. That he's, he's an affront to democracy. In times of crisis, and the same thing with FDR, in times of crisis, Americans like the idea of having a president that will do whatever is necessary to preserve the nation and preserve the Constitution as a whole, even if it means violating some specific provisions of the Constitution. Now, is Donald Trump, what, what he's been doing, has it been similar to what uh, Abe Lincoln was doing when he suspended the writ of habeas corpus or um, what Andrew Jackson was doing with the uh, displacement of Native Americans during the Trail of Tears? Um, you know, I, I think that I'm not going to make specific policy comparisons other than to say that, um, that, that many of Trump's policy positions have seemed and some of his actions as president, as president have seemed authoritarian, but we've been there before historically. Now, um, the specific question of what do we have as a safeguard? What do we have as a safeguard of democracy? It's another place where political scientists are of two different minds. One is the elitist view, which is a safeguards for democracy or political elites, especially things like the courts. And the other view is what I'll call a more populist version of democracy. And I don't mean populism like the right-wing populism that we uh, affix to Donald Trump and Brexit and the right-wing populist movements in, in Western Europe. I mean a populism that has faith in the people, the population, the mass public, to enforce democratic norms and values and make these decisions. I kind of believe in the latter. That is, I trust the people more than elites. One of the ways that we're going to see whether this popular, the, the, the popular, the, the public is trustworthy, is how they respond to an incumbent president who arguably has not done a very good job 
on COVID and a number of other crises. And Will, as a political scientist named V.O. Key, described the electorate as a rational god of vengeance and reward. Will we see voters exercise their ability to seek revenge on an incumbent president that they don't like and then reorient uh, American politics? Um, you know, even though we have a Bill of Rights, everything in there has some kind of restriction on it. Like take the First Amendment, you can have freedom of religion, but not if your religion involves human sacrifice. Freedom of assembly, but not if you're blocking in a fire station or police station. Uh, freedom of speech, but not if you yell fire in a crowded movie theater. And in the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, but I think everyone would say that if you found that someone was assembling a nuclear weapon in their home, that there would be a compelling public reason to stop them. So there are limits to all of our rights. And the Democrats and Republicans have been arguing over what the limits are and to which rights. So the Bill of Rights is not the bright line that we hope it is. Rather, it has always been subject to interpretation and, and one person's limits may encroach on another person's uh, freedom. So this is something, I, I, my, my own opinion is that this is something that the public has to wrestle with. And I'm not sure we will see political elites uh, protect our, our rights. I, would, I was going to end off, but I feel like I have to ask now. Um, in, in what ways do you think the public would be able to, I guess, manifest that um, safeguard that you just described? Well, we've seen some of it. Uh, the protest movement, I think has been uh, about the protection of individual due process rights. Um, the counter protests, I think everybody involved in those uh, is leading politicians to think more closely about police power and, and access to guns and what is free speech. Um, because you know, people will, I think, focus sometimes in thinking about the protest over the summer on riots and looting, but, but the vast majority of those protests were people walking in the streets, um, chanting slogans, or sometimes in silence, and that is freedom of speech, and that, that you, the streets were talking, um, rather than political elites, and I think that was a wake-up call to political elites to follow the public. There are a number of other cases. Let me. Um, one of my favorite exercises, I'm going to give it away to my Government 3 class next quarter, is to ask, what is the most important event in desegregation? And almost everyone says Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education. That's a very elite-driven perspective on American politics because there is a Supreme Court declaring segregation illegal. And I said, well, the, the steel mills and coal mines were desegregated in the 1920s and 30s. Major League Baseball in 1947, the military in 1948, Brown v. Board of Education was in 1954. The Supreme Court ran to the front of that parade, but desegregation was already happening. And after the court's decision, there, was, there continued to be segregation in a lot of places. Um, and that segregation wasn't overturned by the Supreme Court, but by local school boards and, and the population then desegregating. Uh, so the safeguard for democracy, I think, has always rested in a public that supports democratic values and will exercise its rights when it sees those values encroached upon. Well, thank you very much, Professor, for joining us. And um, thanks everyone for listening. Please join us uh, next time.